Middle-aged eyes require middle-aged light. Some of you know what I mean. And the rest of you will soon. <laughs> uh, can, can you help her with the figure in the right buttons? Well, Okay. Thank you. Does that mean it's on, Dennis? It means it's right. Okay. Yeah, thanks. We're good. Thank you. So this morning uh, I talked a, a, a little bit about effort and practice. And I think I'd like to pick up some uh, comments on that theme this evening as well. So this morning we left our uh, our role model, Sisyphus, with syphilis, <laughs> pushing his rock up the hill, only to have it roll down again. So for those of you listening to this talk online, you just had to be there to really get that story. But tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about our tendency to second guess the universe, second guess reality, and how that, that plays into our, our practice and how it manifests itself in practice as particular forms of delusion, which can be difficult for us to recognize because that's the nature of delusion, but which, if pointed out to us, can actually allow us to begin to see certain distortions and actually sharpen our awareness by recognizing their presence and working with them in a way that is skillful. So if you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, the four no- teachings of the Four Noble Truths in particular, you would recognize that what he says is that discretionary human suffering stems from what he calls ignorance, avijja, which is not just not getting how things are, but it's a kind of active, operative misunderstanding that is present in us human beings uh, and is present and operative often. Only a few of these times where it's operative and present do we actually come to a recognition that, oh, that's delusion or that's deluded. But because this avijja, this ignorance about how things really are is present, we don't understand how things are happening, we don't see clearly, we want things to be a way that they can't be, or conversely, we want things to not be a certain way that they must be in the immediate sense. And in general, we may have expectations from conditioned reality that are actually impossible for conditioned reality to deliver. We may look for happiness in all the wrong places, as they say in country music. So this not seeing, this not knowing, 
this misunderstanding occurs at many different levels of the mind. It's a bit like our whole system is wearing a set of bad glasses or has a, a really bad prescription. And so the whole view is distorted. And with this wrong prescription, uh, our seeing of things is very unclear, is very inaccurate. Everything looks to be other than what it actually is. And of course, because these distortions of perception are so pervasive, of course they play themselves out in spiritual practice as well. How could they not? Because actually, until we finally take off the bad set of glasses or we clear the lens in some sort of way, we keep seeing everything through these set of distorted perceptions, this prism of avijja or ignorance. You could say even, it wouldn't be too strong a statement to say, that one way to describe practice is that The point of it is to see and then see through the distortions under which we habitually operate, but which have been previously unconscious. So this is a bit analogous to getting some sort of spiritual LASIK surgery where there's a basic reshaping of (laughs) the uh, perceptual capacity itself in the interest of truing it to reality of letting us see things as they are without distortions. But of course there's a big problem with this way of proceeding because if the main problem is misunderstanding and it's so deeply embedded but we need to see through this very misunderstanding, you can see how challenging it really is because we're practicing with this embedded misunderstanding right up front. So how do we go about clearing this? So the point of this talk is to make some particular suggestions about how we can proceed with practice in a way that we aren't just practicing from our misunderstandings, but we're actually beginning to see them and see through them so that we're actually facilitating in recognizing their inaccuracy. And this is the question, is there a kind of way to compensate for these existing distortions, at least to some extent? It would be a great aid to practice if that were the case. So we would need to start with the first acknowledgement, which is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's foundational teaching, the historical Buddha's foundational teaching structure. And he tells you very clearly in those teachings, which are a required fluency for any of you who want to understand what's really going on when we come on retreat, or when we do this kind of practice. He very clearly tells you within that practice structure his diagnosis of ignorance and how it plays itself out 
and gives you the antidote or gives you the remedy, gives you the path of practice to actually clear up the misunderstandings. So in the big picture, of course, this avijja is cleared by the practice of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path in depth. So this, this path has what we need, but we don't see it. And why is that? Because of avijja. So if you're a fairly well-informed Buddhist, if I was able, if I were to ask you what are the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, you'd be able to give them back to me, perhaps with a little bit of hesitation or a few pauses or maybe some, you know, errors in the order or something, but you'd, you'd be able to get most of it out. But as we have seen, that this is a different thing than actually having realized the truths of these at a level where they transform the mind. So the kind of uh, practice that is actually called for within the system of understanding is, as I've said earlier, much more multidimensional involving the mind and mental understanding, but also involving uh, the heart, the emotional attributes of our whole system, and involving the senses, all of our, our sense doors. So how do we slip past these, this tendency towards distortion, which is, part of our conditioning at present. One thing to do is to realize that we generally don't see delusion because if we could see it, it wouldn't be delusion. So it's a little bit like trying to see the back of your head, right? You know, you could whirl around and circles around and around and around and never <laughs> be able to do that. It's kind of like a dog chasing, chasing its own tail. But I've learned over time that there are certain sets of desires or drives or particular kinds of thoughts which or uh, agendas which for me when they arise in practice are really clear indicators that avijja is alive and working. And if we can begin to identify these particular kinds of patterns and recognize them when they're present, we can use awareness of these patterns and a skillful relationship to them as actual places where awareness can strengthen where letting go can take place and where we can choose to do something different other than just operate out of them. In other words, we can actually make them a meditation object and thereby remove them from the field of delusion and bring them into the light of awareness as just another arising. So all of the deluded views that I'm going to talk about have something in common. 
And they all start with the assumption that somehow we're in control and we know how things should unfold. So there's an assumption of control there and an an assumption that we know what should be happening now and we know what should be happening next. Now I often talk about the human situation as being fundamentally a confusion about our span of control. We know as human beings that we do have some influence on what happens next, right? The, the Buddha's view is one that we do have the possibility to choose when mindfulness is present, when wholesome factors of mind are there. We have the capacity to let go of suffering and turn the mind towards awakening. That's a basic premise of this whole system of mental development. So it's not deterministic. The teachings on karma, the teachings on causation, all of these deep teachings are saying that things arise due to causes and condition, but conditions, but they're not saying that we have no influence, that we have no capacity to set the direction for our own evolution and to move our heart and mind in the direction of liberation. Quite to the contrary, the Buddha would often say to his disciples, I would not, if this were impossible, I would not ask you to do this. So there is capacity, especially looking uh, in the intermediate and longer term to actually make things happen. To choose to practice, for instance, or to choose to uh, set the alarm at a, uh, a time that allows you to get up in the morning to get to work so you can keep a job. We, we all know that this is true, right? We develop the capacity to kind of front load our decisions and choose to do one thing rather than another because we want this outcome instead of that outcome. Where it gets confusing is that we're not clear about what the limits of that is. And we generalize that inclination to move towards one thing and away from another thing. And we apply that same sort of reasoning or that the same impulse to control goes into our micro experience of moment to moment awareness. So have you ever had the experience where you've had the thought, you know, I, I should uh, be able to go to the breath and stay there. I should be able to do that. Or I should be able to get, a, get rid of this pain in the body that's present that, you know, is just getting in the way of my meditation. But it's really clear that at the level of immediate arising, at that level of immediate arising, like what's, what is coming up in the mind as the immediate present tense experience, there is generally very little to no control. Little to no control in what is arising in the immediate sense, within the mind. There's no control over what hearing happens. <laughs> 
There's probably not much control over what body sensations are uh, arising. There may be little, very little control over whether or not thinking happens or whether a particular emotion is present. Have you noticed that? Yet all of these delusions that I'm going to talk about all have the assumption that somehow we're in control and know how things should unfold. So there's some kind of often unconscious uh, mental model of what should be going on, what should be happening in this closed model of practice where we're trying to make things happen that we think are going to advance us towards a particular goal. And then one way we measure success is whether we, we feel we're moving towards that goal, towards what we think should happen, and that often involves an anticipation of a certain amount of pleasantness. Right? If it were going in the right direction, it would be getting pleasant, or I would be feeling this state, or I wouldn't be experiencing that state. So, you know, this is is really a form of delusion. And its starting point is a fixed view which tries to order experience in a way that supports a mental model, often unconscious of what we think should be actually happening. So this may or may not be conscious, but it's definitely operational. And this kind of ideal version of reality then is present as a kind of overlay on what's actually happening. You know, maybe there's an ideal self-view or maybe there's an ideal view of practice or an ideal uh, version of what should be happening in the moment. And of course the flip side of this mind is that it often feels like whatever is happening actually is not adequate or it's not right or it's not good enough. So how does it know that it's not right, it's not um, adequate, it's not good enough? Because what's happening is, is different than what the system thinks should be happening. So what's actually happening in these cases is, is that the present experience doesn't meet our expectations and projections or our performance criteria. Maybe it's not sufficiently pleasant or novel. Um, It's not what is preferred. Maybe it's uh, not what's been heard about in a Dharma talk or read about in a book. But in some way, it's different than what we think it should be. So I'm going to talk about specific delusions that arise uh, related to practice that all are sourced in the same sense of wanting things to be different, feeling things should be different, insisting that things should be different, and the delusion that's bound up in that. So a delusion that comes up in practice is the delusion of thinking that you know what the outcome of practice is. So of course there are many teachings that talk about what this practice does in terms of 
uh, eliminating or reducing greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind or the cultivation of wholesome factors of mind or maybe you know something about the progress of insight or the, the way the seven factors of, wa- of awakening tend to open. But an, until these things have actually happened, we actually don't know what that experience is from the inside. How could we? We know it has something to do with having more wisdom and compassion, but we don't know in specificity exactly where we're going and how could we? We know the general direction. I had uh, (laughs) a friend tell me this story once at a wedding reception. So this uh, couple had relatively young children and the family lived in the Northeast and as, as is common with people who live in the Northeast during the winter, they would try to go down to Florida <laughs> to get a break. <laughs> this is part of the Northeast routine for many people. <laughs> you try to get out of the cold for a while. And the family had a parrot. And so they couldn't fly. They would drive with the parrot in the car. And so they would be making the trip. They'd be driving down. They'd be driving. The kids would be talking about, you know, what was going on and when were they going to get there and when they were going to get there. And at a certain point they started noticing, they had two children, that they were actually hearing three voices going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? And this is part of what we do with our own practice, isn't it? It's kind of like, are we there yet? Is it happening yet? Is this happening right? Is this the right thing that's happening? Should something else be happening? So, you know, to realize and accept that we don't know where this process of transformation is going to go, how it's actually going to unfold is important because it supports our ability to actually let go of the attempt to control what's happening in the immediate moment. You know, we undertake practice seeking something. But you know how certain religions don't really name God? They don't try to define it (laughs) too closely. The great mystery It's kind of wise in doing this practice to let it go at that. You're moving into the great mystery in the direction of liberation, in the direction of the uh, ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because otherwise, if we do more than that, we're judging things by our current level of knowledge and very often by the standard that it should be getting better and better in some sort of linear way, in a way that features a lot of pleasant experience. But we have many embedded misunderstandings in the mind, right? 
That's what I was just talking about, avicca. Invisible to us. So what we think we want in the immediate sense is really quite unreliable as a test of whether or not anything is opening. So if this wanting can be recognized and known as just a desire, like wanting something to happen, like wanting to have some kind of experience or wanting to have some kind of state or wanting to preserve some sort of state or wanting to you know, have it be better than it, it was in the last setting. If you can see that and recognize that as a desire, take it as an object, then your practice can continue to open without interruption. That's the, the delusion of thinking you know what the outcome of practice is. Just let that one go. You know the general direction, right? You know the North Star. <laughs> just, leave it at, just leave it at that. Then there's the delusion of knowing what should be happening now. So I've talked with a number of you about this because um, it's so common. And you'll notice over and over again the feeling that something else other than what is happening, should be happening. You ever had that feeling in practice? Something else should be happening? And this is often uh, accompanied by the thought, well, this shouldn't be happening. (laughs) This shouldn't be happening. That should be happening. And there's an, an affirmative version of this, which is along the lines of, I should be able to. I should be able to, I should be able to, I should be able to sit without restlessness. I should be able to practice all afternoon without sleepiness. Right? I should be able to stay up all night because I heard that, you know, if you're uh, in Burma that people don't have to sleep. (laughs) I heard Steve Armstrong tell this uh, very funny story uh, once. I think he told me this in an interview. I, I think it's okay I tell this story. But, but he said he was on r- retreat once uh, uh, as a monastic. And, you know, and many uh, Burmese teachers are very hard charging in terms of urging effort, urging effort, and urging effort. You know, less and less sleep, less and less sleep every night. Strive, strive, push, strive, push, strive. And how he was, you know, reducing his need for sleep and he was practicing more and more hours and how the the Sayadaw uh, singled out a particular yogi to praise to the group who, you know, was rarely sleeping and was, you know, had like conquered the need for this, this. And later in the afternoon he saw, as as he often saw, this particular yogi doing what this particular yogi did a good part of the day, which was... (laughs) And he got a chance to really watch his mind. (laughs) You know, watch his mind. So, you know, this version of I should be able to, 
Where does it come from? So if, if you notice this, I should be able to, or this shouldn't be happening, coming up. What you're actually seeing is resistance to what is and the desire for something else and avija. It basically means that your, uh, the chain on your bike, bicycle has just slipped some gears. You're disconnected to what's actually present. You're not knowing that yet. Or if you're knowing something, what you're not noticing that the discontent or the uh, aversion with it and the de- desire to substitute something else. So, you know, I said this is a vija and it is ignorance because it doesn't understand that whatever is arising in that immediate sense is arising in a lawful way because the causes and conditions support its arising. So, you know, fighting the pre- what is actually present is wasted motion and it's suffering. What's the name of, there's a name of a book called, uh, by an African-American uh, woman whose name I can't remember at the moment, but the, the title of it is, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Very evocative, don't you think? You want to create something different right now? Well, you'd have to be in charge of causes and conditions. And that's usually not the case. So fighting this is not only wasted motion, but it's actually suffering. So can you just see this as aversion or desire? or delusion, and if you can, if you can really see that, recognize that, then your practice can continue to unfold without interruption, right? It doesn't derail you. You just see, I want something else, or I want to get rid of this. (laughs) Whatever the thought is or the movement of mind is, you see it and you recognize it. Then there's the delusion of the, the good yogi measuring stick, this mental model we may have of what's involved with being a good yogi. So a lot of us come from environments where there's an emphasis on striving and success and accomplishment and all the rest of it. You know, we might, might think that, you know, we uh, should be able to play the, the piano Uh, really well and maybe we think we should know at least three languages or we should be able to code computers or we should be fluent with social media or we should be the world's best dad or you know whatever the attainment is we should we should make six figures at least in terms of annual income whatever the model is this is part of our uh, uh, western culture you know, we want to be able to play football like Tom Brady or, you know, the whole story. So this accomplishment, of course, is a source of self-esteem and the respect uh, of others, and social approval and all the rest of it. So a lot of us are trained from a fairly young age to really pursue the carrot of 
looking good or uh, being approved of. This is part of our nature as social animals. Of course, we, you know, we live in a group. We need the approval of others, at least at a certain minimal level, or at least not their constant, unremitting disapproval with no, uh, no harbor of safety. So this, again, is you know, part of our natural and biological conditioning as well as our social conditioning. But you have to remember, you know, if looking good is important, when we do spiritual practice, because this is uh, not only the feeding of wholesome qualities of mind, but the purification of delusion and the unwholesome uh, qualities of heart and mind which can also arise, it can't be a light-only journey. It can't be a looking good only journey. So it's not like you start the workout and you just get better and better looking, you know, leaner and, you know, better muscled and you lose the pudge and, you know, you shape up and it all looks good. It can't be like that because we're touching everything as part of the process, which means that part of what can open, can become conscious, can manifest in practice, are these other parts of us, the suffering parts of us, the dukkha parts of us. We come into close contact with our own misunderstandings, our limited views, our shadow side, our unconscious mind. And there's some pretty wild stuff in there, have you noticed? I mean, shocking (laughs) thoughts of, you know, cruelty and anger and and hatred and despair and uh, greed and egotism and, right? It's all in there. We all have it. If you think this is just your mind, I I wish it was true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's not, you know, this is, this is part of all of our, our heritage. You know, some of this is, is biologically rooted. So if we're unduly horrified with all of this and don't recognize that this is normal, then we're not really going to be able to touch it in a way that brings awareness to it and begins the process of taming it and repurposing it. Repurposing it as an actual pathway to awakening. Disarming it. Disarming its harm. But it's present and it comes to light and we have to work with it. I was watching this interview with an American journalist, Bill Moyers, and he's a very uh, skilled interviewer. He's also uh, a Baptist minister, I think a Southern Baptist minister, but he's a Baptist minister. So, um, you know, he has a particular religious heritage through which he, 
he tends to experience things. So his guest was Pema Chodron, the Tibetan uh, uh, nun and teacher. So this was definitely a meeting of worlds for Bill. So he had researched her background and he asked her about what her longest period of silent practice was. And what it was like. And he said, well, what was it? What was it? What's it like to be silent for that long? He said, what was it like? And there was this beat, 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 beat. And then she says, detox. And he goes, detox? (laughs) Tell me more about that. Clearly it wasn't what he was expecting to hear. But it's kind of like detox, isn't it? So we can imagine that she, this very respected teacher, like the rest of us, has had plenty of contact with all of the hindrances, desire, aversion, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, doubt, that she's had plenty of self-negating thoughts, plenty of angry thoughts about others, plenty of despair. I read recent, I saw an interview with her recently, uh, Oprah interviewed her. So again, this was an interesting juxtaposition of mine. Oprah interviewed with her and, and she talked about how she, Pema Chodron, talked about how she had done a solitary retreat at one point where she had, you know, basically just gone off by herself and how in the process of doing this solitary retreat, she had incredible amount of loneliness and desire, you know, to reach out and call friends. And she said when she was first there, she, she, as I recall the story, she actually did call somebody, you know, just to check in and connect with somebody. And then she realized you know, she still wanted connections. She still wanted to call somebody. She still wanted to relieve this state. And then she realized, no, this is it. What is it? This is feeling lonely. This is wanting connection. This is what it is. Practice with it. It's just a state. And she talked about how she turned her, turned her mind to it and practiced with it. And of course, what do you think happened? She died of loneliness and was never, never heard from again. No. All states self-liberate, right? This is the truth of conditionality, even the most difficult, the most painful state. So... You know, there's this idea that we should be uh, model yogis, but there's no way to avoid the arising of these conditioned habits of dukkha, of suffering. But if we've got some kind of self-view going on that these states shouldn't be present or we shouldn't be experiencing this or, you know, a good practitioner wouldn't be feeling this level of annoyance or, or restlessness or whatever it is, that somehow these are wrong or they're illegitimate, 
It's a problem. But we have to say, you know, when these kinds of difficult states come up, you know, they're not a source of security or enhancement of our egoic self, right? The self-view, it's like, oh, oh. The ego can take a big, a big hit. Yet contact with these states is inevitable in spiritual practice and it's an essential part of the whole process. It's not a mistake that these states are happening. It's not wrong, they're not illegitimate. They're, it's essential to the process of transformation and moving the mind towards wisdom because things are becoming conscious. So in this world, in the Dharma world, in the world of bhavana, a willingness to touch the truth of the moment, however unflattering, unfamiliar, or unwanted, is the door in the wall to liberation. That's how you pass through. So the question is, can you see the desire to be like a good yogi or to do a good job at your meditation practice? Can you see that when it comes up as just a another desire. It may have some wisdom in it, but it probably is, is more diluted if what it's doing is setting you up at a, a T-bone angle to what's actually happening. If you can see it as a desire then you're, and relate to it in that kind of way, then your practice will continue to open and unfold. So then there's the delusion of getting things right. So I talked about <clears throat> the model that refers to the self-sense of being the good yogi and doing good at it. Something that's important to you and how the mind can get caught up in that. But there's another way of being deluded which has to do with trying to figure out whether we're doing it right. And the actual truth of it is, you know you're doing it right by looking at what happens to your mind over time. Over time. Intermediate and long-term horizon, not short-term. So over time is the mind becoming more kind, more wise, more patient, less selfish, clearer, then you know it's working. Are we able to become open to an increasing range of our human experience with balance and equanimity and acceptance? So this is seen over time. And many of you have talked about this, how you've noticed a transformation of mind over the arc of your practice. You don't see it happening moment by moment. You don't see it happening day by day. You might not even see it happening year by year, but if you were to look back to what was going on when you first started and what your <laughs> operative assumptions were about yourself and about how things should be, and how to work with your own suffering, you can see in many cases 
a significant amount of change. Because really this is all about learning (coughs) to work with your mind. And how do you learn how to work with your mind and the content that is continually arising at the six sense doors by practicing connection with what's happening and trying in a certain way and seeing what happens and then trying in another way and seeing what happens, right? That's how you learn. So the question is, can you rest in the direct experience of what you actually know directly? And if you can, then things will continue to open. So, you know, there's the delusion about making something happen. And the Buddha talks over and over again about effort and how important it is to make effort. He talks about that a lot. That's one of the things he talks about the most. So this again falls on Western conditioning where many of us are very well conditioned to make effort. We have no problem with making effort. No problem. (laughs) We pour it on. We get in there. (laughs) We get ourselves tied up in knots and then, you know, we try to power it through or we we take our most difficult kind of experiences, our most uh, painful experiences or or memories or emotions or something and we, you know, do a head-on charge into it, you know, like the charge of the light brigade, you know, we're like in a picket's charge at Gettysburg or something, you know, we're going to go for it, we're going to go into it, we're going to vanquish it, we're going to get rid of it. Mm. But of course those two were not successful military kinds of engagements if you remember your history. So there is a kind of effort that needs to be made. In some ways, this whole process is probably the hardest thing that you've ever undertaken if you are giving yourself to it in a full-hearted kind of way. And one of the hardest things about it, of course, is it's so simple. (laughs) It's so simple given the complexification Uh, machine that we are. And why is it so hard? And it's so hard in part because we actually don't trust that simply knowing things receptively in a close, continuous way as they arise can do anything for you. Doesn't that seem like that's like, but you're not doing anything. You're just like, knowing what it is, you're not like doing anything. We think that uh, there has to be uh, a misprint there, some sort of trick. (laughs) Some sort of secret, you know, we're gonna figure figure it out and make it happen. It's gotta be more than this, just, you know, feeling the breath, feeling the breath, sound, sound, hearing, hearing. Emotion, emotion, body sensation, body sensation. Walking, 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 walking. Thinking, 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 thinking. Well, let's get a grip here and let's make something happen. This letting go of control, letting go of the impulse or compulsion to make things happen can be really difficult. 
Because after all, this impulse to control, to make something happen, is a form of the, the very craving that the Buddha says is an expression of the deeply rooted ignorance which sets the whole show, this whole display of suffering in motion. But if we can recognize the desire to exert this kind of unavailable control when it arises and just see it as a desire, this desire to get a grip, to make it happen, you know, to power through something to somewhere, I don't know where we go next, you know, (laughs) power through this to, why? And then? If we can recognize it just as a desire and regard it as an impulse, the practice can continue to unfold. So one of the things that I've figured out is that the truth is actually a surprise. Now Krishnamurti talks about uh, truth is a pathless land that's one of his classic sayings he would talk about. It's not in a method. It's, you know, nobody can teach you anything. You know, it's, it's not formulaic. You can't just like do A, B, C, D and think you're going to run the experiment and get the outcome. It's non-replicatable. But we have methods, right? We have methods. We have ways. We have a framework of understanding in the Four Noble Truths. We have a practical path of practice in the Eightfold Path. We have meditation instructions which clue you or coach the body-mind system to a wise, connected relationship to its immediate experience. And then with some additional coaching and continuity and persistence, the system starts to see for itself where it screws itself up, where it gets entangled with its own arising uh, delusions, its own suffering and painful states. And what happens when it recognizes that and lets go and sees that suffering ends. And so this is very much about a letting a connecting and receiving and persisting and letting go practice. So the kind of effort that's actually called for is about integrity. It's not about trying hard or trying uh, not enough as much as it is a kind of commitment that's sincere to follow the path wherever it goes, knowing, to take this back to the first illusion I talked about, we don't know where it's going actually. We know the general direction, but we don't know. And we can see where we are right now, but we don't know what's up around that rock or through that grove of trees, we don't know that. We don't know whether it's going to be direct. We don't know whether it's going to be winding. We don't know if there's going to be switchbacks where we seem to be going in retrograde motion and 
when we want it to be linear, we don't know that. We have to lay aside our attachment to what we already know and understand in the interest of having new understandings, new insights, new perspective arise. And in this is a very deep kind of renunciation, which is the willingness to let go of our usual gaining idea, our idea that we do things in order to gain things that we want in an immediate sense, and to allow our understanding to be true to reality, to allow our system to actually find the station of things as they are and to learn to rest there. And of course, this is really different from our usual way of proceeding, which is to attempt to make reality conform to our understanding, our preferences, and our pre-existing views. So here we're teaching the system to open and actually connect and allow things to be the way they are. Here reality is leading the dance and we learn to follow along with it on this moment to moment level. So there's a kind of humility there and a kind of surrender that's part of this to trust what is unknown with the desire that it teach us. Because liberation isn't found in recycling our current model of how things are and just adding a few bells and whistles. Are we really willing to allow the system to become so open that it can be reshaped in unexpected ways in the direction of liberation. So this assumes that we're willing to learn and that we're secure enough in some basic way to allow this process to take place. And it can be kind of scary sometimes, can it? This deep practice, when it starts to open, it's like, whoa, I don't want that. (laughs) Okay, I thought this was going to be about peace and joy and light and love and, you know, concentration and pleasant states. And now I'm getting, you know, childhood rage. And, you know, I seem to be going in retrograde motion. It can seem like that sometimes. That's why Pema Chodron (laughs) talked about it as being detox. But you know, we really can't take anybody else's word for it about where it's going. And that's why we need to stay in our own personal power and let go. Not take on someone else's perception or orientation to things. So instead, if well-guided, then you're encouraged to move in the direction of your own perception, your own direct observation, your own direct unmediated knowing of things. And in this, a kind of radical confidence, a kind of trust in 
your basic goodness, that there is a kind of refinement going on, there is a kind of truing, there is a kind of purification that's taking place as part of this process. A kind of bringing forward of the basic goodness, the basic sanity and potential, which will open us to deeper and deeper levels of truth when the conditions are supportive. So this is all part of our human potential. It's a question of learning how to work with the assets that the mind currently has, to utilize them or to turn them in the right uh, direction, to stay there, and in the process develop the kind of qualities of heart and mind that seed and encourage further growth. So at least from my understanding of process, uh, the process, this is how ignorance tends to be remedied by sustained contact of a particular type with unmediated direct reality, with, with the mind properly aimed and, and supported. So what I'd wish for you all is uh, the trust in your own capacity to do this. Knowing that you have the inherent capabilities, the inherent spiritual faculties which can be further strengthened that will allow you to successfully make this journey into the pathless land of your own personal liberation. So let's dedicate the, the merit of our hearing and speaking uh, the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.